working our way through James, and I hope you've had a chance to read it. And if not, today would be a great day to do it. You're not going to do anything else today. Just stay at home and read James. Um, but my advice is read it slowly. And if you find something that's profoundly impactful for you as you read it, just stop and let it sink in. Maybe read it again a few other times, because James is like that. James isn't a novel that you sit down and read from front to back. It doesn't follow a plot or a storyline. It seems like a, a kind of a random collection of wisdom sayings. One of our elders, who's here today, uh, was mentioning at the elders meeting this past week that it, it almost seems like James goes to bed at night and he wakes up in the middle of the night and thinks, wow, that's a brilliant thought. And he writes a few things down and then goes back to sleep again. And it seems like this random collection of wisdom sayings. However, it's not simply random. There's a little more uh, in intentionality to what James is doing here, and we maybe begin to see it when we unlock one of the keys to James. One of the keys to James is the Sermon on the Mount. Because what James is actually doing is simply echoing what Jesus has already said. And so James isn't making this stuff up on the spot, or he's not, he's not just pulling from random sources. He's actually echoing what Jesus has already declared in the Sermon on the Mount. And so this Wednesday, when we gather together for our discussion group, we're going to explore that a bit more, just to see how closely tied the book of James is to the Sermon on the Mount, and see how revolutionary that is, not only for uh, the people of the time of Jesus and James, but for us as well, if we really uh, apply the, the principles that are in there. But one of the other things that James does for us is James gives us a really good description, a picture of what it means to be a mature follower of Christ. And by mature, I'm not talking old. You know how we sometimes use that word mature actually to mean like old people. But no, we're talking about mature in the sense of whole or complete. And he does so by using a very particular word. He uses the word Teleos, which means perfect. That's how we sometimes translate it. And I think he uses it seven times in James, which is also the perfect number. So he's being very intentional as he goes through this. Teleos means mature or whole. And that's what James is calling us to, to be whole believers in Christ, to be mature believers in Christ. And this idea doesn't come to him just on the spur of the moment. It's actually an echo of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the idea. And James picks that up. And then he gives us an idea of what maturity looks like. I don't know how long you have all been journeying uh, with Jesus. I hope you all have at some point started that journey. And if you haven't, today's a good day to start. But if you have been journeying with Jesus for some time, sometimes it's hard to know if we're making progress. You ever sit down and go, am I actually maturing in Christ? Am I actually 
uh, developing the kind of life um, that we're called to as disciples of Jesus. Well, James helps us to give a measurement, a marker or two, so we know if we're moving in the right direction. So what does wholeness or maturity look like in James? Well, we've already discovered. Mature followers of Jesus rejoice during trials. And as we begin to find a way to worship, to rejoice in God, not in the trials or the suffering, but to continue to rejoice in God, so our faith grows up. James also says that mature followers of Jesus consistently overcome temptation. If we're just caught again and again and again by the same temptation, then we need to ask God, God, help my faith to grow. We need to grow up in our faith and become stronger because mature followers of Christ, says James, overcome temptations. Mature followers of Christ also practice the truth. James says they're not just listeners, they're doers. They don't just hear the word, they put it into practice. The, the hypocrisy um, line is very, very narrow. There's not a lot of hypocrisy in mature followers of Jesus because they're putting into practice the truth. Well, here's another one from our reading today. Mature followers of Jesus do not play favorites. <laughs> Kira joked with me about this reading today because she's like, mature followers of Jesus do not play favorites, but you're choosing your favorite daughter to come up and read scripture, but we'll deal with that after the fact, after the sermon is over. But that's what James is saying. Do not play favorites. He says it very emphatically in the Greek. We must not show favoritism in the church. That's his bottom line, and that's what we need to explore. So what's happening here? Why is this so important? The way that James says it, he indicates that it's already happening in the church at the time. I mean, sometimes we think of the early church as being pristine, as being, oh, if we could only go back and be part of the early church. They had their problems too. And the way James expresses this to us, playing favorites was part of the problem. So what's behind this? What's happening here? Well, I don't think we can understand the context unless we talk just for a little while, and bear with me, talk for a little while about the system of patronage in New Testament times and in the Roman world. And we're going to explore this a little bit more um, on Wednesday night as well, because I think if you clue into this, it will unlock all kinds of things in the New Testament for us. And so this idea of patronage was this. It was the most prevalent um, societal system in Roman times. It was the way everything operated, the way business was conducted. It was the way relationships were, were understood within the Roman world. There were the patricians, those were the upper class, those are the ones in power, actually a very small minority of people. About 5% were the ruling class, another 5% were the wealthy class. And then all the rest were the riffraff. <laughs> and that's the way it worked. They were the plebeians. And, and within that system of patricians and plebeians, there were patrons and clients. And that's what we want to get at. There is a sense in which those who were wealthy became patrons for those who were not. They gave benefits to those who did not have the same status or wealth as others. But those benefits weren't freely given. They came with a cost. And the cost was loyalty. So that's the understanding. If I'm a patron and I have a lot of money and prestige and power 
then I might want to lend that to Samuel from time to time in exchange for loyalty back to me. That's the idea of the patronage system. Now here's the bottom line. The early church was very dependent on this system because the early church didn't have their own independent buildings or their own independent donation base. They didn't have special access from the government to hand out donation receipts. There was no uh, perks to being a Christian church during those early times. And so they were very dependent on patrons. And we, we discover a number of different people in the New Testament. And I know that, that you'll watch for them now as you read through. Have you ever heard of Lydia? Lydia was a seller of purple, uh, which means that she was actually quite wealthy. Lydia was so wealthy that she had a lot of clients. She had a, what they call a household. The household wasn't your, your children or even those that were related to you. They were all the clients who looked up to you as a patron. You're the one that protected them, provided for them, went to the law courts for them, but you expected loyalty in return. So what happened when Lydia became a Christian? When she became a follower of Jesus and was baptized, her whole household, all of her clients got baptized as well because that's the way it worked and it wouldn't surprise anyone for it to work that way. Or we read of another character, many others, but one by the name of Erastus. And he was apparently the city manager of Corinth. And he was a patron. And he helped the early church by giving them a place to meet, by giving them funds and foods, by holding special feasts for them so they could eat, by taking care of the poor among them in return for loyalty. And so this was part of the culture but it was also part of the church. So patrons were the key to success of the early church. And sometimes we overlook that. The way that Paul traveled all over the world, how did he do it? Because he had people that were funding him. Paul sometimes was sprung out of jail. How did he do it? Because he had people who had status who were watching out for him and protecting him. So this is the way that it operated. So now think of our passage. If you're in that situation, in that scenario, and a wealthy patron walks through the door of the church, what are you going to do? <laughs> you're going to be extra nice to that guy or that woman because you realize that you really can't exist in society without them. And so there was this favor shown toward people that might fit that category of being a patron for the church. And James radically says, stop doing it. Stop doing it. Imagine right now if we decided that the government of Canada decided to just simply cut off all tax donations for the churches. No tax donations. And suddenly tax all the properties. And not give pastors any benefits for their clergy housing allowance. And, and we could go on and on and on, not have protective status for religious systems. What would we do? If suddenly that was cut off, it would be a shock to us and would really disrupt, maybe jeopardize our ability to operate. Well, it's the same here. James, what he's suggesting is not just a, a simple thing. This is some, something that radically could jeopardize the very existence of the local congregation. If you're not nice to these people, they're not going to pay your bills. And so this is a real step of faith. So why was it so important? Well, patronage was a benefit, but it also came with problems. 
And if you read Corinthians correctly, you'll realize that a lot of the problems in the church in Corinth had to do with these wealthy benefactors who were now also expecting certain loyalties and certain perks and certain leadership positions in return. It could lead to serious pitfalls, and even, says James, it could lead us into sin. So I want to explore this a little bit more. What is this passage saying to the early church, but also how does it apply to us? Because we're no longer in that system of patronage, but I still think we need to learn from this passage. So I'm saying a lot of P's a lot of times, so I'm going to choose three more P's to talk about as we get to the heart of this passage together. The first P is this. We've already discovered it in the text. Partiality. That's partly what's happening here. Stop showing partiality. Uh, The Greek is an interesting word. It's actually a mashup of two words that means to receive the face of a person, which sounds really weird. But it's the idea of treating a person with favor according to their outward appearance. That's what James says. Stop doing that. Stop treating a person with favor according to their outward appearance. When we go to the Flames game, we don't have a lot of cash to get right down front or in the good seats. So we sit in what? The cheap seats, right? But in the synagogue, they didn't have the cheap seats. They had the chief seats. Literally, that's what they were called. And you find that even when Jesus goes into synagogues and he questions them and he challenges them about who they put in the chief seats. These were the special seats right near the front. The woman would be maybe at the back or up high in the balcony and the men would be down in the bottom area. And a lot of the churches, this is the way they operated too, But the chief seats were reserved for those of prominence because they wanted to show off that their congregation had attracted the attention of some very prominent people in society. And James says, stop doing that. Stop showing them to the chief seats. There are no chief seats. It's general admission (laughs) for all. It's a have at it. First come, first serve. Kind of like here, but everybody still sits at the back. But that's the idea. James saying, don't show them to the chief seats. Not only is it a bad practice, James says it's actually sinful. It's sin. You know, we often say the phrase, don't judge a book by its cover, right? But that's actually how we buy books, (laughs) right? That's the way that the the producers of, of books, they spend a lot of time on those covers because they know it attracts our attention. Maybe we'll have a recommendation from someone or this or that, other reasons why we buy a book. But often, because we look at the cover and we think this might be worthwhile. Well, James is saying, don't judge people by their covers because God doesn't do this sort of thing. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, um, the prophet Samuel is going to anoint a new king. Now, the first king of Israel, anybody remember his name? Saul. And why did they choose Saul? Because he was handsome. He looked like a king. He was taller than the rest. And people said, look at this guy. He's going to make a great king. I would follow him any day. And he was a failure in the end. But Samuel goes to Jesse's family, and he's looking at all of Jesse's son. But the weird thing is, Samuel still has this rubric in his mind of looking on the outward appearance to see who would fit the bill of king. This is what God says to him. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, 
but the Lord looks at the heart, right? James is just echoing this. In the congregation, when we come for worship, whatever's happening in society around us and how we look to people and value people, James is saying, we do not show partiality in the church. We do not treat people with favor according to their outward appearance. And we do not treat people with disfavor according to their outward appearance. That would be sin. So partiality. But I want to deepen it a little bit. Because partiality um, sounds a little bit light in our English language. Like, I'm partial to vanilla shakes. I had one last night. That's my confession for the day. But I'm partial. So we use that word kind of lightly. And so I want to dig with a deeper word. And the word that might get our attention a bit more is prejudice. Prejudice goes a little bit deeper. If partiality is treating a person with favor according to their outward appearance, prejudice is to place value on that person based on their assumed status in society. When we begin to place value on a person according to what we assume we know about them, then that's prejudice. You know, we have all kinds of labels for people, don't we? All kinds of labels that we use. And, and some of them are just kind of natural labels that occur. Some of them are actually much more sinister than just being natural labels. But we do this. We like to sort and assign people to certain categories. We like to assign value to certain groups of people. And we like to give them labels, especially when we don't understand them. If we really assess why we do this, I think it's because maybe we don't understand who this person or group of people are. And so we label them because once we label them, we feel like we've put them in some kind of category that we can then comprehend or at least control or manage. We label people in order to feel safe ourselves. That's what prejudice does. And so we label people male or female, rich or poor, smart or slow black or white, conservative or liberal, whatever those terms mean, straight or gay, vaxxed or unvaxxed. We begin to label people. And the problem is this. When we begin to treat people according to their labels and not according to love, then we sin. That's the issue at heart here. When we treat people according to their labels and not according to love, then we break the law of God. That's what James is saying in this passage. It's great to say, love your neighbor as yourself. But then when you go treat people differently because what you assume about them and what you assume to know, then you're breaking the law of love. And that's what James wants to point out. So partiality, prejudice, but I'm going to go even a little bit deeper. Behind all this is a word that comes up often within the New Testament, within the teachings of Jesus. I think it is the biggest temptation that we face in the church. And the word is power. Power. I think the church has done a very bad job with power over the ages. And we gravitate toward it and we're tempted by it. And yet Jesus always resists the world's understanding of power. How does he do it? By serving. But power is really behind the scenes here. See, the trouble was that some of these patrons, as they came in and were treated uh, especially nice by the congregation, then they began to assume power and leadership in the church. 
They assumed that they had these by right because they were wealthy, because they were benefactors to the church, because of their status and wealth. Some, says James, were even finding their clients in the congregation, realizing that their clients owed them loyalty or some kind of payment, and were grabbing them, literally, and dragging them to the courts. You see, during that time in that system, you can't sue someone who's a higher status than you. And so these patrons are coming into the church looking for their clients because the early Christian church was full of the riffraff. It was full of all the people who owed loyalty to the patrons. And so a patron walking through the door might not be God's gift to your congregation. In fact, says James, he's the very one who's dragging you into the courts. And so there was this power imbalance that was being created in the church. And James, along with Jesus and Paul, say, reject it, resist it. This is the reason, I think, why Paul doesn't accept any money from Corinth. It's a very interesting thing. Paul needs money to travel all over the world. Sometimes he does tent making. He actually works with his hands in order to gain that money. But he would not accept money from Corinth. Why? Because he didn't want to become a client of the patrons in Corinth. He didn't want to owe them anything and be placed under their power. In Corinthians 2, um, Paul often speaks of the gifts of the Spirit, and we understand that in a particular way, but what Paul is really saying there is that every person who comes through the door into the congregation is a benefactor, not just the wealthy, not just the elite, not just those with high status, but every single one of us has something to offer to one another. We are all benefactors, says Paul. We all have gifts to bring and to give. And once we start to understand that, then we start to see this power imbalance that was in the early church start to level out. Here's the danger with prejudice. When you marry prejudice to power, in today's world especially, you end up with racism. That's the danger. And racism isn't a partisan political issue. Racism is a sin. And that's where James is leading us in this conversation and into our setting today. So these are the ways of the world. Uh, Sometimes we talk about the ways of the world and how we're called to be different as Christians. And I've mentioned this a few times. Sometimes we focus on the externals. Good Christian boys don't smoke or drink or chew or go with girls who do, right? Some saying like that, which is just ridiculous. And we've often in the church focused on the externals. But the ways of the world in the early church had to do with this. They had to do with partiality, prejudice, and power in this patronage system that was impacting and affecting the church. And James says, stop it. Stop it. Our values and our actions should not be determined by the standards of the world. They should be driven by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I read this... um, quote actually a couple weeks ago, and it keeps surfacing, and it's been a real challenge to me, and I think it fits with what James is calling us to do. Quotes from uh, Stephen Matson. He says this, Christians should regularly ask themselves, is my faith more a reflection of my political and socioeconomic values and actions, or a reflection of the values and actions of Christ? That's a challenge to us, isn't it? doesn't matter where you come from in the political spectrum or within society. 
This is the challenge, and this is the challenge that James is saying. Reject the norms of society because God is calling us by the gospel to something completely new and different. Christians should regularly ask themselves, is my faith more a reflection of my political and socioeconomic values and actions, or a reflection of the values and actions of Christ? Here's the, the bottom line. Playing favorites, says James, is inconsistent with the character of God who does not look on the outward appearance, right? Playing favorites is inconsistent with the law of God, which calls us to love our neighbor as ourself. And playing favorites is inconsistent with the kingdom of God, which declares that the in the gospel, there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, all are one in Christ. You get a little taste of how radical the Christian community was meant to be and still is meant to be, that we are called to be one in Christ. So James and I think Paul and others took a great risk in rejecting the systemic problems that they found in their society and denying power to the patronage system by calling people to be one in Christ. But all they were doing was following Jesus. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own kind of people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Father, as we're about to pray today at the end of this message, an image came to mind of celebrities walking into our gathering today. What would happen if, I don't know, Wayne Gretzky came walking in? Or maybe Justin Trudeau came walking in? I wonder if we'd be distracted. Probably. I wonder if we'd treat them differently. Likely. And yet, Father, in my mind, I, I see in that setting with these celebrities coming in and sitting among us, and then all of a sudden the heavens are open and you reveal yourself to us. Suddenly those with celebrity status mean nothing because all our eyes are fixed on you. Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus so that we can treat one another with love regardless of what label we hold or what category we put in or what our social standing is in life that we'd see one another, first of all, as those made in your image. Second, as those redeemed by your Son. And Father, help us to do this so that your name might be glorified in this place and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.